backtrack for just a minute and, um, and talk about two words that, that I think if you understand them uh, will change your life. I think that they will change the way you live. And so I want to read to you. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, I want to read to you a passage. And I want to just highlight what I missed. Okay? All right. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, some of you might grasp on some level the significance of Jesus calling God your Father. But I'm going to guess that, that, like me, many of you kind of just passed that by. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about why these words used about Christ's disciples are earth-shattering, okay? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So, first, I want to deal with what appears to be a, a contradiction in Scripture. What appears to be a contradiction in Scripture. Okay, now, if you go back all the way to the Exodus, we're going to read the entire story, but if you go all the way back to the Exodus, when God calls Moses, you remember the burning bush, and he's commissioning Moses to go redeem his people from slavery, Right? In that moment, God says, you need to go to Pharaoh, okay? And if Pharaoh refuses to let my people go, you need to tell him, Israel is my firstborn. And if you don't let them go, I will kill your firstborn, okay? And at that moment, this, this major theme in the history of Israel unfolds, namely that God is treating his people as his firstborn son, okay? And it's not just in this moment. All throughout the law in, in Deuteronomy, uh, God is referring to his people as his children, okay? Uh, for instance, at the very beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding the people who have been rebelling against God all the time, he's reminding them who God is, and he says, like a father carries his son through the wilderness, God carried you through the wilderness, right? And then later on, God says, you need to be pure, not like the nations. Why? Because you are sons of your father, right? So there's this like building theme of, of Israel being God's son, okay? Which I think is the reason why I didn't really think too much about Jesus calling God your father, right? Okay, well, he is, on some level, Israel's father. Now, I want to show you something else, though, and I'm actually going to read this passage because I think it's profound, and, and I think it says a lot about what has unfolded. Listen, in John 8, okay, John 8, sorry, that was Luke 8, 
which is not John 8. Okay. Okay. The Jews said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. Okay? Interesting. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Okay, so what they're doing is they're pointing back to the law and saying, Jesus, you're wrong. We know. We know because we've read the law that, that God is our father. And listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why well, do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Okay? So, so crystal clear, Jesus is saying, God is not your father. All right, now, what happens, right? If, if, if the law has God stating, Israel is my firstborn, and Jesus looks at the Jews and says, God is not your father, what, what happened? Okay? And it's pretty clear in Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read you Moses' song. Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32 starts this way. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. So what happened between God declaring Israel, his firstborn, and Jesus saying, you're of your father, the devil. What happened? Sin happened. A broken covenant happened. Sin shatters Israel's relationship to God so that after they've violated the covenant and rebelled against the Lord their God, they can no longer claim to be his children. Okay, and now that's not unique. To Israel. That's not unique to Israel. Sin has made orphans of us all. I don't, I don't have time to read all of it, but I'm going, to, I'm going to capture the essence of Acts 17 and Romans 1. Paul says that, that all people are God's offspring and that he has put them in a place so that they would reach out and grasp for him, even though he's not far from any one of us. Okay? That's Acts 17. Romans 1. It says God was showing who he is and what he's like to all the people in the world, right? And instead, even though they knew him, they chose not to honor him or thank him. But what did they do instead? They said, I want creation instead of creator. And so what did he do? He gave them up in their lusts to impurity, right? Same dynamic we see unfolding 
in the law is, is we had a unique relationship as people, as, as sons of Adam, we had a unique relationship with God. And instead of honoring him as God and seeking him and thanking him, we said, you know what? I'd rather have creation. So you creator, you go away. I'm going to take your stuff, which has, by the way, an eerie resemblance to the prodigal son narrative, right? Which starts with a son functionally saying, I can't wait for you to die so that I can have your stuff. Can I just go ahead and have your stuff and leave? Right? The prodigal son narrative is is a metaphor for the situation that you are in and that the people of Israel were in. Okay? We are estranged. Orphans. Made orphans by our sin. Okay. So how is Christ just throwing out your father language? Your father in heaven. It's not just in this. We're going we're gonna to review many times. There's, there's, I think, eight times in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, your father and your father in heaven. And, and much of his teaching actually pivots around the father's care for his children. So what is going on? Like, how, how can Jesus simultaneously imply that his disciples relate intimately to God as Father, and also teach that sin makes orphans of even God's chosen people. Like, how do those two things happen at the same time? How can both be true? Well, the answer is in Galatians 4. I want everybody to open to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. It is on page 974 if you're using a Bible in the pew. Galatians 4. This is in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So, okay, so how can Jesus simultaneously imply that his disciples have a rich and intimate relationship with God as father and also imply that even the chosen people are orphans lost in the darkness? How can he do that? Because Christ was sent to adopt his people by carrying their sins. That's the answer to that question. Sin makes us orphans. Sin makes us orphans. There's kind of two uh, analogies being used by scripture. One is very clear in the prodigal son narrative, which is when we choose to take God's stuff and reject God himself, we become estranged sons, lost in the world, okay? And the other metaphor being used is that we are orphans, right? We are orphans in need of adoption. We have no family. Sin puts us there. 
okay? Sin makes us orphans. But when Jesus came, he resolved the problem of sin, okay? How? Because he took the sin that had estranged you from God. He took the sin that had put you into the darkness as an orphan, and he bore it on his shoulders. He laid down his life on the cross, and all the wrath that was due you, all the wrath that was due you because of your sin was poured out on Jesus, so that if you have faith in Jesus, you are now reconciled to God. And he has adopted you as his son or daughter. Okay? Jesus was on a mission of adoption. It's all over the Bible. Okay. Now what that means for you, if you claim to be a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus, what that means to you is that you are now God's child. Right now, if, if Jesus has carried your sins on the cross, you are right now a son or daughter of God. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. You are a son or daughter of God. In the same way that Jesus traded your sins for his righteousness, you got his status before God as son. Right? That was an adoption effort. And that means something for the way we, le- we live. And you've got to take that seriously. Right? I think that the purpose on some level of the Sermon on the Mount is, to, is, is our big brother teaching his little brothers and sisters how to be good children in the family of God. Okay? I think our big brother Jesus is teaching us how to be good children. All right? And so what I want to do is I want to apply the Sermon on the Mount by, by focusing in on a number of these Our Father passages and try and teach you what it means to be good children. How do we be good children of God? And I think the sermon is answering that question. All right? Now, the thing is, we're going to be jumping like uh, on lily pads from bit, uh, bit by bit throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be returning to these passages over the next few years, probably. Well, years is probably an overestimation. Every time I say something like that, Jared goes like... But we are going to be focusing in on these individual passages. What I want to do today, though, is I want to highlight the dynamic of God's parentage, God's fatherhood towards you, and how that should change the way you think about your life. Okay? All right. So I think the first implication in the sermon is that we must, as God's children, show the world how great your father is, all right? Show the world how great your father is. Go ahead and just go, turn to Matthew 5. We're just going to be skipping through the Sermon on the Mount, but this is what I'm referencing. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that, so the reason you're salty, the reason your light in the world is this. All right, that's what, so that is there. Why do you behave as light in the world? This is why, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Why are you here, child? 
Why are you here right now? Could God not have just rescued you from your sin and shoof, straight to heaven? Yes. In fact, we, there's a couple times where that happens in the Bible. I mean, it's not right after somebody is, is, is faithful, but, but sometimes God just takes them up, right? He could do it to you, but you're here in part so that you will shine your light. What does that look like? Good works. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. All right? You want to you be a good child of God? Show the world how great your Father is. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for God's glory. You're out there to make him famous. Now, he's famous without you. Right? It's not like, like it, the burden is on you to teach the world how awesome God is, but what you're, you're declaring by your good works that he is worth worship. Okay? So what does that look like? Every word to make him famous and every work to make him famous. I think that's what, that's a, that's a simplification of whatever you do, do it for God's glory. As Christians, we have an imperative to ask ourselves why we are doing what we are doing. Right? We have an imperative to ask ourselves why we are saying what we are saying. Why are we reading what we are reading? And if the answer is not so that people around me will know how good God is, then stop. I think it's that simple. And I say that. And in the actual doing of it, I am falling on my face all the time. However, that does not lift the burden of the call to work feverishly for the fame of God. Okay? You are given a limited number of days. And when you stand before the Father and give an account of your time, I promise you, you will regret wasting it. I promise you, That's, that feels so distant, it feels so abstract, that we don't often face how much we will regret wasting time. But the scripture doesn't hold that back, okay? So every word and every work and every thought, the objective should be the fame of God, all right? All right, let's keep going. Maybe, maybe the hardest verse in the Bible. Maybe. <laughs> we were talking through this yesterday, and Tara saw this slide, and she said, I'm not perfect. <laughs> That's it, right? You feel that, right? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we've already talked about this passage and you shouldn't read this passage and say, I don't need to be perfect, but Jesus was perfect in my place. Because then what you do is you take the words of Jesus to mean the opposite of what they mean. All right? So this is a call to holiness. It's a call to perfection. Now, how? How do you, how do, you do that? Right? How do you walk every day further and further into perfection? Well, the answer is by the Spirit. But I want to give you practical advice, and I'm going to do it in, 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 by telling you two stories. 
Uh, when I was in college, I was in love with C.S. Lewis. I, I loved reading him. His, he's, he's a master writer. If you haven't read C.S. Lewis, just if you want to leave right now and go get a book and read it, I wouldn't be offended. Um, <laughs> C.S. Lewis is a brilliant writer, and I was talking to my roommate. I was like, oh, man, I want to write like this guy. And he said, well, read him. Now read him over and over and over again. It's like, just read everything that he's written and then read it all over again. And just keep reading him. Now that's one, that's one anecdote. Another one is from another writer about a decade later, a good friend of mine. Um, and he, he's, he's, he's regularly finishing books and sending them out to publishers. And, um, and I asked, how do you get better at writing? And he said, you know, I find a writer that I want to be like. And what I do is I read him a lot. And then what I do is, is I will open up a fresh page, and I will open up the first page of his book, and I will start writing, and literally every sentence that I write about my own story will be the same number of words, and it will try and hinge on the same number of adjectives and, and verbs and Anyways, what he was doing was he was modeling, right? He, he, he wanted to write like someone, and so he was modeling his craft after the craft of another. Now, the reason I tell you those two stories is I don't think that's a bad analogy for what we do when we're trying to see God for who he is and behave as he behaves. You can't just generate holiness. But what you can do is you can study God. You can watch Him. You can read His words over and over again. You can reflect on His character, how He related to people, how patient He was with the people of Israel, how much He was reminding them of their promises, even in the midst of their rebellion. You can watch God. And you can listen to God over and over again for days and weeks and years. And as you watch him, you will begin to behave like him by the power of the Spirit. Bad company corrupts good morals. We believe it in the inverse, right? But do you believe it as a positive statement? Who you hang out with will change who you are. And you have an invitation to hang out with God. Right? So watch him and listen to him and reflect on who he is and then model his behavior. I think that's a practical way to be like your dad. Now, I want to stop for a second and I want to address something. This picture of God as our father, for some of you, it's naturally, easily, It's a metaphor that you can get behind. Because, man, your dad was great. Right? Some of you, you're, you got story after story after story of your father's faithfulness, your father's love, your father's kindness, his generosity, the time he spent with you laughing, telling stories. That's some of you. Some of you... When you hear father or dad, it's, it's hard. 
I want you to know that your parents are supposed to be a metaphor for our true father and not the other way around. Okay? Let me state this a different way. Your bad parents tell you very little about who God is. Okay? Your bad parents tell you very little about who God is. Now, if they had done their jobs well, then you'd have a, a, a hazy picture of the goodness and compassion and love of God. But don't let that bad model color this, this picture of Christ, a picture of God as your father. Okay? In fact, leverage those bad memories to feel the comfort of the God who is always there, who is always looking out for you. Right? Now, I know that's hard, and there's a lot of baggage there, but, but you can't toss the analogy. You can't toss the picture. You can't toss the relationship of Father. It's central. What you can do is you can reflect on how good your heavenly Father was. even in the midst of how bad your parents are. Right? All right. Keep going. There is a handful of passages like this one. I'm just choosing one. When you give to the needy, don't, left your, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And this goes for fasting, and this goes for prayer. This is your discipleship, your good works, your chasing after God should be done in secret, and the father who sees in secret will reward you. So I think what this is saying is that our discipleship should be geared towards the father's reward. Right? And anything less than that is not discipleship. Okay? So, in Jesus' day, who were the most public prayers? Right? Who were the ones that were fasting regularly? Right? The ones who were making a show of giving at least a tenth of all of their goods. Right? They were the enemies of Christ. And that has something to say to us. God has asked you to pursue him secretly. All right? That seems kind of weird and mysterious, but, um, but I love this picture because the father who sees in secret is just a really beautiful image for me. He's always there. And he sees what no one else sees. All right? So we are to pursue him in secret. Now, what, what that doesn't mean is that we don't pray together. What that doesn't mean is that, you know, if you have an opportunity to, to walk someone through the gospel, you don't, you don't try and, like, hide it. But what it means is, when you're doing the work of pursuing God, and it needn't be seen by anyone, then it shouldn't be seen by anyone. Amen? Okay, now, I don't, I, I'm going to ask you, these are four questions that will help you 
pursue the Father in secret. Uh, this is a little weird. Like, I reflected on this this morning, and I thought, well, this is kind of a weird way to get here, but just go with it. <laughs> um, whatever the thing is that is your discipleship act, right? Whether it's prayer or fasting or, or searching the scriptures, whatever it is, ask yourself some questions about it. Who knows about this? Who knows about this? And how do they know about this? And why do they know about this? And, and must they know about this? And here's what I mean. Sometimes when I ask myself questions like these about my own works of discipleship, I start to see ways in which I'm leveraging my discipleship to build respect. Right? Now, you answer these questions about every act of discipleship, and you'll begin to see dynamics where you're actually doing the work of the Pharisees, and you'll also see dynamics where you're actually doing the work of pursuing God. All right? And that'll help you build a mindset that resists the urge to shine your righteousness before men. Make sense? Okay. Okay. Maybe my favorite, maybe my favorite aspect of the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We don't pray enough. We, we don't pray enough. I, there's a quote, I'm going to butcher it. Martin Luther said something like, if I have a particularly busy day with many, many decisions to make and much to do, then I pray at least for two or three more hours, right? So he, what he was doing was he was twisting on the head the idea that I don't have enough time to pray. Right? If you're in a place where you don't have enough time to pray, you should be absolutely dependent on prayer because God give, gives good gifts to those who ask. Right? Make prayer your instinct. I, so I've been trying uh, to get better at not looking at my phone. Right? And, and I've, I've got tools in play that would keep me from using my phone when I'm just sitting around or there's nothing else to do. And, um, and what's weird about this situation is like, I'll be in like a waiting room, right? Or at the airport or something. And, um, and when, you, when you've resisted the urge to look at your phone, well, you just look other places, right? You just look other places. And what's crazy is how often I look around and, and everybody in the room, almost everybody in the room is like this. But I didn't know that because I was like this, right? <laughs> We're all just like this all the time. Now, know that tick is there, 
all right? And then try to resist this and pray instead. Another thing, uh, <laughs> I, um, I get in the car sometimes to run errands. This is probably the, the bane of Brett's existence. I, I get in the car sometimes to run errands, and always my instinct is to call a buddy. And so I'll be like, hey, Brad, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, carrying two children and, like, serving dinner. And I'm like, hey, you want to chat for a little while? Right? It's an exaggeration. I don't think he's often carrying two children. Um, I found that when I'm alone, I long for fellowship. I began to ask myself, whose fellowship am I really, truly longing for? And so I started to see that instinct in myself, that tick, and I just tried to turn it into prayer, right? You've got ticks too. Those ticks may or may not be undermining your prayer life, but what I'm asking you to do is, is look to those ticks and try and convert them to opportunities to pray, asking God for good things. You ask God for good things, and he will give good things for you. That's all over the Bible. I'm not talking about the prayer of Jabez. Okay. I'm talking about good gospel kingdom vision things. Ask God for good things, and he will give good things for you, because he's not like us evil fathers. Right? Okay. Keep going. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What a picture. This is not the only time this dynamic unfolds. Jesus also says, when you pray, don't be like the Gentiles who feel like they just, if they heap up empty phrases, God will listen to them because your father knows what you need even before you ask him, right? There's this dynamic that, look, if God is truly your father, he knows what you need and he's going to give it to you because he's good, right? Trust your father. This is a major weakness in my life. I am crippled by anxiety often, because I don't trust that God's going to be as good tomorrow as he was yesterday. Right? I think the Bible gives us a great model for how to trust God. And the model is memorial stones. Okay? Read through the Old Testament, and there'll be piles of rocks sometimes. That seems weird. But the pile of rock is there. Rocks don't naturally pile on themselves. Right? Rocks don't naturally pile on themselves. So when somebody's passing by and they see a pile of rocks, they're like, what's that there for? And then some old man Israelite says, you know why that's there? That's because that's where we crossed over the Jordan. When, when God rescued us from, from slavery, and now we have this land because God is faithful. Memorial stones. You need them in your life. I don't know what it looks like, but record God's faithfulness. Just record it. Write it down in a book. Like a lot of you journal. Write it down in a journal. God was faithful, faithful to me on this day, this way. And then read it. 
Or pictures. Pictures work too. Uh, my, my phone now does this thing where it just sends me random pictures. When I open my phone, it's just got like 10 random pictures from like the last 20 years or whatever. And um, I look at those pictures and I remember how faithful God is. Right? I remember how terrified I was in this moment that this thing would happen. But, but God was faithful. So we remember the good works of God to deliver us and to be faithful to provide what we need when we reflect on them. And that reflection will give us peace for future grace, give us confidence in future grace. Amen? So all of these things are ways that Christ has given us to remember the unique relationship his people have with God as Father, adopted into sonship. Right? So, so read the sermon and reflect on how the calls of the sermon are doable because you are God's son or God's daughter. Amen? And here's the, here's the hope I actually wrote down, but I didn't save the slides. Here's the blessing. May our Father, who gave up his only son for our adoption... Empower us by the Spirit to understand the call of His children and to do it. Amen? Amen.